Eels off the top. Larkham. Herbert smashes through the middle. Gregan. Drop goal from Larkham. Up it goes. Could you believe it? Larkham has to be De Beer. Welcome to the Green and Gold Rugby Podcast. My name is Hugh Cavill. We're coming at you in November for a spring tour edition, a preview show. We've got three games coming up. We've had a Bledisloe a few weeks ago. There's still plenty of rugby left in the season. And to join me, uh, we've got uh, Jamie Miller, the professor himself, coming from Sydney. How are you, Jamie? Um, very good. Lots to talk about. Always looking forward to it. And also joining me, I've got longtime producer uh, Nick Vasiliev. Nick, how's things? Good, mate. Good. Happy to jump in once again, uh, even if it's at the last minute, because we just found out that Matt, who was supposed to jump in tonight, is still having a fantastic day after a recover- after the Melbourne Cup and still having a wonderful time. So happy, more than happy to be on the pod tonight. Yeah, look, Matt's, Matt's been a late scratching, fair, fair to say, in, in the racing <laughs> parlance. Um, not often, not often there, there are late scratchings due to uh, horses or jockeys still being out on the source, but uh, that's the uh, that's the case <laughs> today. And uh, as always, Matt bringing his usual level of professional rigor to the podcast. So a shout out to Matt and uh, and Reg is just missing in action as well on family duties. So it's the three of us tonight. We're slogging through it. We're gonna we've got a bit of a shortened edition. We've got three burning questions. Um, the first is is. Rayleigh Castle's prediction, three out of three. Is it realistic chance for the Wallabies on the spring tour? Um, question two, uh, talking about England, South Africa, and the Owen Farrell hit, did Gus Gardner get it right? And question four, Twiggy Ball, or Rapid Rugby as it's now called. What's our thoughts on that announcement? Um, and we'll talk a few other things as well uh, because there's plenty of rugby going. And we've got New Zealand, England this weekend uh, that we might touch on as well. Um, but let's start with question two, and we'll go straight to you. Sorry, question one. We'll go straight to you, Jamie. Um, we've got games against Italy, Wales, and England. Raylene Castle said the pass marks three out of three, 100%. Um, is that a realistic chance for Michael Trek and the Wallabies after what we saw in Tokyo? Um, look, it is it is realistic. Um, whether I put money on it is a different question. I mean, we really are playing quite poorly at the moment. Um, we are stringing together sort of 20-minute phases of really excellent rugby, and then we're stringing together 20 minutes where we just lose the plot completely and look like a B-rate team. And I think both Wales and England are good enough to take advantage of that. Um, but, look, the potential's there, and if we're able to show the kind of creativity that we're capable of, um, then, yes, we are every chance of going 3-3. Three and three. So, you know, you go back and look at those games and you think Italy – um, is is obviously the the one that's the must win in Wales. You know, given our psychological advantage, you know, you, you'd probably still put the Wallabies, even though Wales are number third now, the third ranked side in the world, and we're number six. You know, you'd still say that's about an even money bet. It comes back to England though, doesn't it? And and I mean, I've only seen highlights of the game against South Africa, and even though they got the win there, it's it's fair to say that they're still definitely a shadow of the team they were a few years ago. Would you agree, Jamie? Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, playing England today is the same as playing them last year, is the same as playing them for those four tests in 2016. All five of those matches are the same match of rugby, which is England defending stoutly in their own half, not playing any rugby at all until they get to the middle and front ends of the field, kicking effectively um, and a tight set piece. 
what is alarming for us is that the set piece has just fallen apart this year. I mean, the scrum was looking so promising and it's it's just collapsed recently. The line-out is non-existent. And England really depend on capitalising on opponents' mistakes. That is fundamental to how they beat teams. And if you look at pretty much every game we've played this year, that is how other teams have beaten us, is that we've really beaten ourselves. We saw that in Bledisloe 3 in Yokohama uh, last week, for sure. And I think that's what England will be licking their lips at, is they'll just be looking for us to do stupid things. And we are more than capable. We are excellent in that particular area. And uh, that is the part of the matchup that doesn't look so good for us. Nick, I mean, going back to that, that Bledisloe in, uh, in Yokohama, so I think that's to do with Tokyo before it was in Yokohama. Um, you know, obviously the scoreline was a little bit of a blowout in the end, but, you know, uh, just after that uh, halftime, it, again, was the same story as what we've seen in the other two Bledisloes, wasn't it? You know, Wallaby sort of sticking with the All Blacks for 40, 45 minutes. And then, you know, all of a sudden you blink and there are two tries on the board and, and you're out of the game. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, compared to the other matches, the other Bledisloe games, um, this one, at least the Wallaby, like there was something slightly more positive to come out of it. I mean, our attack looked a little bit better. Um, they were actually starting to take chances. But I completely agree with Jamie about, you know, making mistakes. The real killer in that game was the amount of turnovers that we conceded. Um, I think the end result was, you know, New Zealand turned over the ball seven times. I think we turned it over about, I think it was 20 um, the, with the amount. And, you know, when you're not stringing together consistent ball and, and consistent time with the ball, um, it's it really comes back to bite you. And it really um, says a lot. You know, it, those turnovers, you lose a huge amount of pressure. And it really can also, in terms of, you know, completely flipping the game around very quickly, um, which, you know, it's a lot how New Zealand like to score their tries. They like to kind of, you know, do a quick counterattack. But it also mentally can really kind of completely take you out of it. When you have 20 offloads and 20 mistakes, effectively, you're not going to win that many games. Um, so I think, you know, going on to these three kind of matches leading on from that Bledisloe game, it really is a case of particularly, it really does, again, like you mentioned, come down to England. Um, you know, I think the Wales game and the Italy game is our winnable games, um, with all due respect to, to Wales, um, especially because they've got a very good squad. Um, and, you know, Warren Gatland, you know, he's a, he's a decent coach. Um, and when you've got the likes of, you know, Jonathan Davies and George North at your disposal, um, you're going to be at a, a tough, tough challenge. But, they, but the Wallabies do have a mental edge. Um, it really comes down to playing a smart game and not forcing those mistakes because, like you know, like Jamie says, if you force those mistakes, it's going to be like the last six matches we played against England. It's just rope a dope rugby. It's just silly mistakes, and it leads to the same frustrating result. So yeah, and the, the other part of that, and you know, I, I agree with Nick, and I obviously agree with myself as well. Um, <laughs> I mean, the other part of that, apart from the turnovers, was just this: the, the defense was not terrible. It was really, really bad one-on-one missed tackles in that game in Yokohama that cost us badly. There was uh, Kurtley Beale missing that just easy one-on-one on on Liam Squire. Uh, That try in the second half, that excellent try where uh, Rico Ioane and Bowden Barrett linked up off the scrum. Will Genia just missed Rico Ioane again, one-on-one in not that much space. When you go and look at the tries New Zealand scored in that match, including the intercept, they, they were just soft. 
I mean, there was that there was brilliance, sure, but I mean, we were just giving them too many points, and so it's not just turnovers in attack; it's a hundred percent concentration and effectiveness in defence, and we're just falling a bit short on both sides of the ball at the moment. So, I mean, I'll stick with you, Jamie, for a second. So, you know, the Wallabies have obviously been in camp for for two weeks in in Japan. Now, moving over to to uh, the Northern Hemisphere, they've got some development players in. Adam Ashley Cooper's back in the squad, um, and they've also got uh, Jordan Pattaya in there. They've got Izzy Nicerani, who's obviously just there in a training capacity until he's eligible. Um, you know, plenty of time in camp, plenty of training time away from from prying eyes. I mean, what what do we expect out of them, and what do we want to see? Because I mean, you know, you, you said that before against against England. It seems like we keep making the same mistakes. On the wish list for you, what's what's high on the on the wish on the Wallaby wish list from these three games? Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things that I don't think they've got enough credit for this year is they have really rejigged their attack. Uh, the attack now looks very different to what it did 12 months ago. It, it's a lot more unpredictable. I'm not saying it's better, but it's more varied. And I think we want to see more of that. But we also want to see constancy in who's going to be on the pitch. There's been so much chopping and changing this year and uh, some players have sort of seemed to go into favour with the coach and then immediately out of favour. And I think when they go into these three matches, yes, I think they do want to give Jordan Patea a run. And yes, I do think they want to give Jack Dempsey a bit of a go as well. But it would just be great if some of the other positional units started to show some stability so that the players could could get those combinations going. And that really hasn't been happening this year. Um, and I think you need that. You can't have Israel Folau playing three different positions in three different matches and expect the other players to just fit in around him. That's just not quite the way it works, you know? Yeah, true. Nick, what do you make of the Ashley Cooper selection? I mean, that has been a bit of a talking point um, this week. Um, and, you know, I, I tend to think that these sort of squad guys and Ashley Cooper, from just judging from Twitter, some of the reaction of, of fellow players, guys like, James Hansen and, and uh, Heath Tessman, I think, was another one. And a few sort of um, odd odd players who you wouldn't think would have any affiliation with Ashley Cooper basically come out and, and really applauding his selection. Um, yeah, it seems to be a really well-liked guy around the squad. Uh, I haven't seen him play since he left these shores. I mean, it's obviously a bit questionable considering our winger stops, but um, on one of these tours, having, having an old head around, I mean, it... it at this point in time, I'm inclined to roll the dice, but I can understand why why people are skeptical. What what camp are you falling? Well, it always I think it just comes down to with Ashley Cooper. I mean, having him around, having a 116 Test veteran around, is going to be so helpful for the likes of you know your Sepinayavalo, your Jack Maddox, your Jordan Pateas, just to just to literally be a sponge and get. Um, and learn experience off a player like that. When it comes to actual selection in the squad, really it comes down to how well he plays. I mean, if you're going to have... I mean, if Ashley Cooper is has still got it, if he's still got... I mean, yes, he's, he is getting on a bit. He's, you know, I think he's, he's you know, age 34 now. Um, but if he's still got the 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 skill and the means to, and, and can still very much be an asset to Australia's go-forward in attack then you'd be crazy not to pick in. Um, having, I think it is an interesting decision in terms of comparing him to, you know, a younger player, but uh, oh, picking, you know, him over, you know, like another younger player. Um, but, you know, if he's there and he's going to be beneficial to the squad, 
then I think it is important to have him. You know, and also the likes of, say, like having Tatafu Pilota now around. Like, I, th- I can tell that, you know, the fact that he's not even with the squad yet at the moment right now, he's in, he's still in England, he's going to join the squad there. You can tell that, you know, Checker and that like are kind of, he's obviously having a chat to him and telling him to kind of see what's going on in England. Um, so I think, you know, having those players around isn't necessarily a bad thing. You just hope that they can actually keep with it and not and help the, the younger players and, and on top of that, be a good example. And Damien, I mean, a couple of other squad squad members. Um, we obviously, you know, Wings an interesting one because we're, you know, if we pan back, we we saw Sefa Naivalu play in Yokohama and I thought acquitted himself fairly well. Um, and the other guy, Jordan Pattaya, has obviously been brought into the squad. Um, you know, he's a very, very young kid. Um, what do you want to see out of Naivalu and what do you want to see out of Pattaya on this, on this trip? Yeah, well... Look, I mean, when it comes to the wings, it's just been a case of nobody taking their opportunity. I mean, on this tour alone, they've got Naivalu, Corabetti, Adam Ashley Cooper, Jordan Pattaya, Tom Banks, and Dane Haylett Petty, and Israel Flower. That's seven players who could play on the wing, uh, which is quite ridiculous. Um, it's almost gotten to that position. I mean, so the, these wingers are kind of like a Sheffield Shield batsman right now. You put in one good score and you're in the conversation. It, it takes one good performance from someone to put up their hand and grab one of those spots right now. And that's what I want to see from whoever is getting these opportunities, As I want to see them going looking for work, going getting their hands on the ball. And the other crucial thing in this defensive system that we run is it puts a lot of pressure on the wingers, a lot, a lot. And I'd love to see them at least – make a strong effort to to step up to that and to want to be part of that defensive system rather than run around like a headless chook. Um, what do you reckon, Hugh? You're, you're just sort of volleying the questions back to us. I am. Why don't, you spend, why don't you spend a bit of time at the baseline, Hugh? Okay, because I'll, I'll give you a thought. Because, I, I mean, look, I, I like Jordan Pitar and I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a little bit of time off the bench, but I think with three games... Uh, I think if I had to put money on it, I don't think he'll be wearing a gold jersey. Um, you know, often on the fourth or if we had a Barbar's game or something in there, you'd give him a run. But I think with three games, I'm not sure having a, you know, an 18-year-old wing is the time um, to throw him in, although I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to seeing him get time. The, the position I want to talk about, um, and, um, you know, speaking from the heart here, really is, is, is second row. And I actually will say... The bloke who's probably got the most to prove on this trip is Adam Coleman because you know last year, 18 months ago, he was he was the class of the side. He was a you know he was a guy that we were hoping would push on for World 15 selection. You know, um, in a hypothetical World 15. And actually, what we've seen this year is, is I think he's gone backwards. Um, you you know, reckon? He, he, really? He, I mean, I, I I think from his lofty standards and what we know he's capable of, I just don't think he's achieved it. I, I think he's an outstanding player still. But I really want to see him take that next step because I don't think he's taken it this year. And if we want to compete at the World Cup next year, I tell you, he's going to be a key player for us. And and I want to really see him get up and grasp that mantle and and really put put his name up there as someone who's going to lead us next year. And in these really physical games against Wales and especially England, this this is his chance. And and I think you know talking about wingers is all well and good, but you know the second row so often is the you know it's the the um, What's the term? It's you know it's really the critical area where we win and lose these games. Is often it coincides with it beating these good teams. Is that our locks step up and whether that's Simmons, whether that's Arnold, whether it's Rodder, um, or whether it's Coleman, 
um, these guys have got to, got to start really getting in there. And and the other guy I'd really be interested to watch this trip is is Jack Dempsey. And and we saw him come off the bench in Yokohama and, and put in a pretty good sh uh, shift, although he was clearly a little bit short of a run. Um, a number of just little touches and, and a bit of mongrel from a six that, um, you know, as much as he tries hard, Ned Hannigan, I'm, I'm just not sure is able to provide. Um, and I think Dempsey's a guy that, again, you know, there's there's a lot more at stake from him. He hasn't played much rugby this year, and and um, he's a guy with a lot on the line building into next year. One or two good performances uh, in these games, and that that um, World Cup selection uh, puzzle for the back row becomes both easier and harder because if you know it's easier in the sense that we've got a class player there, but also harder with Nicerani coming on. You've got Pocock and Hooper there, um, still kicking around. You've got potential returns of. You know, it's a long shot, but Fardy and McMahon are both there. Um, and, you know, guys like Luke Jones as well, um, not to mention Hannigan. So, you know, the, I think he's a guy that with, with a lot to play for. Um, Nick, do you, do you uh, agree with that? Yes, and that and this and this for me is kind of the, the crux of where I want things to improve. I mean, it really – because I think that, you know, I mean, Jamie mentioned earlier, and this is the thing, that our forwards have not been – doing very well this year, um, you know, both, you know, um, in play in general and also kind of at the set piece, at the line out, at the scrum. It's, you know, and it's a lot of those great performances at the World Cup came off the back of fantastic performances in the forward pack. Um, you know, you had the likes of the fact that watching watching the, the Wallab this Wallaby scrum demolish England in that match um, really kind of set the precedent for us winning that game. So the thing I really want to see is, you know, you, you see your Michael Hoopers and your David Pococks running themselves ragged um, week in, week out. It's time for those fringe players who've kind of been stepping around, like you've been mentioning, your your Isaac Rodders, your, your, your Ned Hannigans. It's time for them to really make a statement. It's time for them to really kind of say, I want to put my name on a particular number in this scrum. I want to be consistent and I want to be at that World Cup because right now it's just a consistent revolving door and there's a lack of consistency. So I really hope that it's the forward pack that really kind of lifts because if you have a great forward pack and you have great ball offset piece, you're going to win more games. Simple as that. Jamie, finish us on the forwards and then we'll move on. What do you got? Yeah, look, I mean, it wouldn't be a podcast, would it, without two of us just diametrically disagreeing with us. Um, I think Adam <laughs> Coleman's been one of our best players this year. He's always physical. He puts in the big hits. And Paul well on the Donald's really... medal. So can we, can, we, can we just quickly pivot, just while I've got a thought bubble? Paul, <laughs> yeah. surprisingly poorly in the John Hills medal. Luke Antui from the clouds. Yeah. What's going on I there? don't. I'm not the, the John Eels medal is well known for its weird voting patterns, but there are a couple of players there who did not feature very strongly, and you've just sometimes you just got to look and you're like, what what are the players looking at on that on that pitch? Um, but yeah, anyway, the point is Adam Coleman's a legend. We love him, the Tasmanian Tongan, and he could get injured today and be healthy the day before the World Cup next year, and he'll be picked. So there you go, fearless prediction. <laughs> Well, that will probably leave us there. Before we go, give us well, let's go fields predictions. Um, how many are we going to win out of three? And you know, well, I'll pose it this way: which games are we going to win? Uh, start with you, Jamie. You go first. 
Uh, two, and we'll lose to England. Nick? Ditto. Like, I reckon, I reckon England right now, even though they're not playing as well as what they have been in the past, um, right now, I think it's just a simple case of... Well, uh, look, I, 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 I want to be optimistic, but I'm actually going to trend pessimistic. I think we might finish with one out of three. I think as, as much as we've got this hoodoo over Wales, um, I think, yeah, decent and we're, we're at a low ebb at the moment. I think if they can't beat us now, then it's, I struggle to see when they ever will. Um, and England, we just can't get, seem to get over. But that's me just being pessimistic. Anyway, let, let's move on um, to uh, England-South Africa. Now, I haven't watched this game, and I'm not sure if either of you have either, but it was particularly contentious, the last decision by um, our very own Angus Gardner, Australian Referee of the Year, three times running, four times running, I think, indeed, um, to uh, judge on a shoulder charge in the, in the final part of the game. England up uh, 12 points to 11. South Africa are attacking in the England half, I believe, on about the halfway line or a little bit into the England half. Um, and it was a shoulder charge by Owen Farrell. And it was sent upstairs uh, as play concluded. The ball was kicked out. England celebrated. Um, and the replays were shown. And Angus Gardner decided that Owen Farrell did, in fact, make an attempt to put his arms around a player, and it was no penalty play on. And this has caused a fair bit of disquiet, um, especially from, of course, our South African friends, uh, who are normally known for their level-headedness when it comes to refereeing concerns. But on this one, seems to be, uh, uh, yes, putting them a little bit uh, into uh, a bit of a flap. Uh, Jamie, you're the referee. You're the expert here. Um, Angus Gardner, did he get it right? Did he get it wrong? Or are we in this? Are we in a grey area where uh, it's hard to tell? No, it's it's not hard to tell. It was definitely a shoulder charge. Um, I think, you know, he led with his shoulder. Once he'd made the impact, he then tried to swing his arms around. But I mean, the reality is, if that decision had been made three months ago, or six months ago, or twelve months ago, it would have been a, a yellow card any day of the week. Um, I think he just. Totally bottled the decision. There you go. Not missing words there. Nick, have you seen it? What are your thoughts? Um, yes, I have seen it. And it, I agree. And But what it really comes down to, and the, the thing, the whole contention about whether it was a legitimate tackle or not is the fact that Gardner was basically said that Farrell wrapped his arm or attempted to wrap his arm around Ersthausen. But really, you've got to go back earlier and that's the fact that he led the tackle with his right shoulder and with that right shoulder he was not making any attempt to wrap around to wrap uh, to wrap his his hand around the player so the and so you have to so you have to see there that that is a really kind of a reckless call um it's i, I feel like in terms of the fact that it, it was sent up it was sent upstairs it was the it was a simple case of every of the fact that everyone saw that arm and it was replayed a hundred times again, stopping the match, and and that and the fact that that that, that Farrell's arm provided some sort of contact was enough for Gardner to say, um, oh yeah, that like he was attempting to make an effort. But honestly, I think I agree. I thought it was a yellow card. I mean, I don't. It's it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one all in general, and it's just, it just goes to show how tough it is to be um, a referee. But I mean, we've been hearing things about saying Angus Gardner should be taken off the ref panel like he's still a fantastic referee and every ref makes mistakes sometimes um, it's just I've actually... sorry you go nick sorry no no um you go you go mate 
I was just going to say, just you know, I just wanted to refresh my memory. So I'm bringing, I've just brought the clip up on my phone just now, and I want to completely change what I said. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I've just done, was, the, I've done the same thing, Jamie. And well, no, no, I mean, I was going to say, oh, I think 19 out of 20 referees would have given that as a both a penalty and a yellow card. I want to revise that to be. 999 referees out of a thousand when you look at it in real time <laughs> there is absolutely no way that's a shoulder charge like it is in fact even when you look at it in slow motion it is almost a textbook example of a yellow card and it makes absolutely no sense how that wasn't a penalty like absolutely none whatsoever he goes in with the right shoulder the left arm is cocked there's no real ability for him to ever be in a realistic position at all to wrap his arms um, it's it's a shoulder charge. It's textbook shoulder charge. Yeah, I, I think I just wanted. Uh, sorry, sorry, you there, but I just it, I, I kind of was comparing it from one tackle, which like this one, uh, where there's clearly no attempt to wrap the, the arm around the body, with another tackle that was sent off, which was Bismarck Duplessis tacking, tackling Dan Carter, and he tackled sure. him with a clear arm below the shoulder. And then, and then Roman Point obviously viewed it as being high, but obviously because he just tackled Dan Carter. Sure, um, that was that was a shocking decision. Mm, but it just goes. But it, it there's the clear there's there's the clear difference. The fact that Farrell made no effort with the um with his left arm, he led with it. There was a clear intent just to to knock um Erstazen, but he did it in such a way that was was incredibly dangerous. Absolutely, it should be a yellow card. Yeah, look. I tend to be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, like I can certainly, I, I certainly agree that it probably should have been a yellow. I, I do have a little bit of sympathy for Gardner in, in the sense that, you know, if it happened in the third minute and not the 83rd, then, it, yeah. you know, these, these discussions yeah. tend to be different. And, of course, on social media now, it just tends to, we tend to lose all perspective around, you know, a decision that, you know, like it or not, it wouldn't have decided the game. It wasn't like it, you know, necessarily, I, I don't believe it, um, you know, the field position was a, it wasn't a lay down in his air, a penalty kickable. Um, you know, they could have had a shot for sure. But, you know, as with anything, uh, in fact, what we, what, you know, I had a South African friend of mine today tell me that we'll really, and I, I haven't watched the whole game, but they basically said, well, South Africa had 55 chances to, to win the game. And so can't exactly complain about a, a decision going the way in, in the 85th minute. But, I mean, Angus Gardner is a good ref, but, uh, Obviously, here he, he's probably pulled the wrong rein in, in in what is a pretty tough environment. So, look, let's let's move forward. Um, we'll talk Twiggy Ball here now. The announcement today of a rebrand uh, of World Series Rugby to Rapid Rugby. Um, now, Nick, do you have any information on this you can you can share with us? Um, so, yes. Yeah, so this is his. I think this is the third rebranding of uh, of of Twiggy's new competition so I think the new name is going to be global rapid rugby um, which next year and apparently that a team from Hawaii is committed to playing a team from Hong Kong is committed to playing it's still going to be an eight team competition um, and there's apparently sides from Singapore Malaysia and Fiji uh, who are also considering uh, participating um, as well. So it's, I mean, it's it's interesting that there, there is that this whole rebranding uh, process is going on, and I think part of me thinks it's to do with the fact that you know how it was originally you know World Series Rugby, and then it was the Indo Pacific Rugby Championship. Um, part of me thinks that a lot of this has got to do with the fact that the that 
Australia, the, the Rugby Australia and New Zealand Rugby Union kind of pulled the, the rug out from under Twiggy a bit um, when they said that, oh, yes, we'll have we'll, we'll want to have teams in the competition and then a week later saying, well, no, we can't be because of Super Rugby and the international season still being unsure. I think uh, it's... As an idea, I mean, I can see that they still want to try and keep it going. Um, though I'm kind of, I'm kind of a bit bewildered that they're still that they that they decided to change this name. Um, I don't see the point. Um, I thought that you know keeping it under the banner of World Series Rugby still works. So I'm kind of curious as to why they've changed it. Yeah, it is a bit odd. I've got to say, there doesn't seem to be much meat on the bones of this announcement, other than now they've got Hawaii in the, in the mix, which you know, known rugby stronghold on the islands there. Um, and I don't think you'll have any shortage of players wanting to sign up um, for the uh, for the Hawaiian side. Um, uh, Jamie, uh, any, any thoughts to add on on, on Twiggy, Twiggy Ball, or is this just a wait and see still? I mean, I feel about this the way I felt about every aspect of everything that's happened since Forrest got involved in this picture, that, number one, it is just so such an extraordinary embarrassment for Rugby Australia that they no longer control rugby in Australia, that there is actually a rebel competition out there. Mm. Um, It's not as though the Irish Rugby Union or the English Rugby Football Union don't control rugby in their respective countries. And all of a sudden, Rugby Australia does not actually control professional rugby in this country. I mean, it's just an extraordinary situation they've ended up in. The other part of it is it's so difficult to see what the end game here is for Forrest. I mean, short of embarrassing Rugby Australia, short of playing another form of third-tier rugby from which a Wallaby is extremely unlikely to get picked, um, it's really unclear to see what's going on beyond support for his business and political interests in WA. But the fact that that third that Bledisloe match in Perth next year sold out nine months in advance, 60,000-seater stadium, that's the slightly more than were there for Sydney this year, shows how badly Rugby Australia misjudged the appetite for rugby in WA. And it is just embarrassing. It's, it's like, a, like a four-headed clown, this competition. It doesn't even make sense. If you try to explain to someone that there was this thing called global rapid rugby. What on earth rapid rugby is, is is news to me. With teams from Singapore and Hawaii, they would think you were on crack. It's ridiculous. And yet it exists and the money is there and Forrest is is bankrolling it and the players are getting the players are getting paid. I mean it's just it's just it's a freak show. Um, but it's a freak show that is bad for Australian rugby at the end of the day. The the only solution to this mess is bringing rugby in Western Australia back into a central organisation. And that has to happen. It's going to happen. Um, But until then, this is just every time he releases a press release, it's like a big middle finger to Rugby Australia. Come on, mate. It's rapid rugby, mate. It's like it's rugby, but it's rapid. You know, it'll be like watching a game (laughs) and then hitting fast forward. Oh, my God. Is that what it is? That's it. I mean, I've been... trying to wonder you know because that's not that's what hitting harder yeah i mean you know it'll be like one of those bad youtube as as i've said before on this podcast you know what we need in australia is developing you know tight skills goal kicking defense and rapid rugby doesn't emphasize any of those things um so that's a good i do i do want to i do want to mention though i do think it is good that 
that it is as, as embarrassing as it is, the fact is that Twiggy is still being a torch of some sort for the game in the West. And I still think that's a good thing in some capacity because it shows that people still care about the game. But I completely agree that it is still um, you know, the fact that it is that it effectively a lot of it is effectively a middle finger to rugby Australia um, is really embarrassing. Well, I mean, the, the primary thing here is that the rugby is definitely running at a big loss and he doesn't care. And what Western Force needed was somebody to back them who didn't mind them running at a loss and could underwrite their costs. It's that simple. That's all they needed to survive. Well, and on that note, I think we should probably draw this to a close. It's been a bit of a short and sharp one. We might be back in a few weeks' time, maybe before the England game. Could even be another podcast with the Egg Chasers if we can bring ourselves um, to uh, linking up with those guys again. Just going through the games this weekend, there's an absolutely um, sumptuous slate of games for, for the rugby fan, starting with the traditional rivals of Italy and Georgia at 1am. Um, this is obviously um, <laughs> Sydney time, um, not whatever uh, regional outpost you may live. Um, the Scotland-Fiji game on at 1.30, uh, England-New Zealand at 2am, uh, which is obviously, you know, the shame of this England-New Zealand game, um, and we might come back to it after I've listed all the games, is that it didn't happen 18 months ago. Um, and now it just appears to be a shadow of what it could have been. Um, we've got Wales-Australia at 4.20am, uh, USA-Samoa-Ireland-Argentina at 5.30, and France-South Africa at 7am. Um, Wales-Australia will be on SBS, I believe, um, free-to-air TV, which is fantastic. Also on the BN network on Fox Sports. Um, yeah, I mean, what's your pick of those games? Quickly, before we, before we go, what's the one game you're looking forward to? Aside from um, Wales-Australia, is it, is it England, New Zealand? Is, it, is, that, is that the one to, to look forward? Do you think the comms can get it, Jamie? Uh, yeah, look, that's a very exciting game, but I am looking forward to the Australia-Wales game because I have a very, very good, very hardcore uh, Welsh rugby fan, and I've known him for about the 10 years that they've lost by a point to us in every game, and I'm looking forward to that continuing. Nick, give us give us a give us a final uh, final tip prediction. Um, what's what's the result in the Wales Australia game, and uh, what's the margin you tipped Australia to win, and also what's the other game you're looking forward to? Well, it's going to be a close one in this in this Welsh game, and I really it comes down as to who as to who plays the game smarter, and I think that the, as the fact Australia have a mental edge over. Um, over Wales that they've won 13 times is going to is going to um, have a lot, but it really depends how uh, how how Wales turn up. Um, you know, as they they weren't very convincing. I mean, they I mean they knocked over Scotland the week before, but it was hardly a convincing performance. And I think that hopefully that the Wallabies will want to come out and actually make a statement because a lot of people over there are saying that hey we can beat these we can beat the wallabies they're not the team they once were so i think i hope the wallabies win but i think it's going to be again a margin of by less than 7 because that's how these games always are um and just for the fact that this game the, the, you know, the match i'm really kind of looking forward to unsurprisingly is that england new zealand game just purely for the fact that it's been built up for a long time um and i i'm actually just hoping that england lose in all honesty, because, you know, it'll just be, it'll just knock them off a perch in some capacity and considering we've lost the last six games in a row, 
to them, uh, I'll take some sort of enjoyment out of that. Well, what a great what a great note to finish on. Let's all hope and we can raise a glass to an English loss uh, this time next week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We will be back in the future weeks and looking forward to another podcast for the Wallabies. Heels off the top. Larkham. Herbert smashes through the middle. Gregan. Drop goal from Larkham. Up it goes. Could you believe it? Larkham has to be a beer.